0: The broadcast is now starting. All attendees are in listen-only mode. Hi, I'm Julie Shepard. Welcome to our webinar on ICD-10 and your bottom line. I'm happy to welcome Cindy Grew today. She has a lot of great information uh, to share with us. Thanks for being here, Cindy. Thank you, Julie, for inviting me to share my presentation. First, I'd like to just take a few moments and introduce myself. My name is Cindy Gru, and I'm the founder and CEO of Healthcare Practice Management, a revenue cycle management company. Been in business for 21 years, and I've actually been in this industry for about 30 years. Today, I'm going to present to you on ICD-10 and, the, and your bottom line. This presentation will last at least an hour, so if you are not able to um, stay through the entire presentation, I wanted to let you know that at the end of the presentation, there is a slide with several resources um, of information that will be extremely helpful to you in your practice. Additionally, there will be a slide with my contact information. So please do not hesitate to reach out to me if you're not able to stay for the entire presentation. Or if you find that you have questions um, after I complete the presentation, please feel free to email me. Okay let's get started. Today I want to go over the agenda. Um, We're going to talk about the myths of ICD-10, the background of how this all came about, project timelines, ICD-9 versus ICD-10, similarities and differences, the benefits and consequences, and additionally a plan of action. ICD 10 miss, um, and you'll hear this from many people, so keep these in mind as uh, we go through this next year. Um, you'll hear, especially providers, think it's just a coding issue. My IT staff are responsible for the changes. I can rely on my vendor to take care of it. My billing company will take care of it. My clearinghouse will take care of it. It won't require many operational changes. The physicians do not have to be involved. That is the biggest myth ever. So we'll get into that um, throughout the presentation. We do not need to budget for ICD-10. We have plenty of time. We are ready now. I love to hear a vendor say that. And it will be delayed again. I truly wish I could honestly say that I would hope and pray that it would be delayed again. But at this stage of the game, I don't believe that that will happen. I think our only reprieve could possibly be maybe a 90-day window where we would actually be um, able to utilize both ICD-9 and ICD-10, but that's probably my guess looking into the crystal ball. Effective today, we are actually 326 days away and counting. As you can see um, on the slide, there really were other code sets before ICD-10. ICD-10 is going to be the one that's going to rock our world. I wanted to take a minute and just talk to you about what ICD-10 is. So we have the ICD-10-CM and the PCS, which is the International Classification of Diseases, 10th edition, the Clinical Modification, which are for um, physician offices and outpatient services, as well as the PC, which is the procedural coding um, system. It's a coding methodology used to support clinical statistics as well as reimbursement in the healthcare industry. The transition to the 10th edition marks the largest change to the methodology in over 30 years. This is huge, and I will tell you, because it has been put on the back burner for so long, a lot of people don't even consider that as an option anymore, that it's a big transition that we're facing. While there are market benefits associated with the implementation, there's avid concern regarding the impact on organizational budgets, coding productivity, and the potential delay and or reduction in the healthcare reimbursement. The information herein will help further explain at a high level this monumental experience. Who's responsible for ICD? It's the International Classification of Diseases. Clinical modification is used to code and classify morbidity data from inpatient, outpatient records, physician offices, and most national, uh, the most national centers for health statistics surveys. Actually, the NCHS serves as the World Health Organization, considered the WHO, collaborating center for the family of international classifications for North America, and in this capacity, They are responsible for coordinating all of the official disease classification activities in the United States relating to ICD and its use, interpretation, and periodic revision. So we can thank the WHO for all of the changes that we're facing with ICD-10. I wanted to start out by going through some um, informational statistics on dates that you either needed to know or that you will need to pencil in um, as they are happening in the future. On January 1st, 2011, we began testing for the HIPAA compliant 5010 standard for the claim form with our trading partners. That first transition back in 2011 was putting us in the position to be able to now do ICD-10. Until the 5010 transactions took place, we were not ready or capable of transitioning to ICD-10. October 1st, 2011, there was actually a code freeze put on, um, so there were no changes, no additions, no deletions, no anything to ICD-9 and ICD-10 to allow you, the United States to get ready for this transition. On March 1st, 2012, we had full compliance with 5010. For those of you who, from a billing standpoint, had the pleasure and the experience of going through this nightmare, Um, I hope you can all appreciate that if we don't get it right for ICD-10, we're going to be so much worse off in this transition. So it's very, very important um, that we utilize our full 326 days left that we have to get it right. The next upcoming date, um, which will be helpful for some practices, talks about uh, the January 6, 2014 timeline where CMS is now putting out their new um, 1500 form and I actually have a picture of the form and we'll go through that briefly but for those who are small enough that are sending in paper claims to CMS um, carriers January 6 right now is the tentative date that we will be forced to uh, start using the new form on April 10, 2014 CMS mandates that all contractors to have their ICD-10 LCDs available. Now, what I wanted to share with you, for those who are in the billing world, um, you definitely know that your LCDs, your local coverage policies, dictate whether we get paid based on medical necessity. Um, Since since actually the year 2000, ICD-10 was slated to become effective for the United States in the year 2000. Um, At that point in time, as we all well remember, that the world was coming to an end because the whole banking system, every computer system that we had was going to crash because of the two-date digit field versus the four-date digit field when we turned from 1999 into the year 2000. So because of the Y2K disaster, ICD-10 got put on the back burner. As you can see, we're not going to be effective until 2014. So it's taken 14 years for us to transition the United States to be ready to um, get on board with ICD-10. Part of the reason is is the fact that in the United States we have many payers, whereas the other countries have a single-payer system. And I'll show you a slide on that um, in a little bit. But I wanted to really comment on the LCDs right now because Because CMS is mandating that every fiscal intermediary has their LCDs updated to ICD-10, you need to pencil in on April 10th that you pull all of your LCDs for all of your procedure codes that you bill and make sure that all of the mapping is complete so that come April 1st, 2014, you will be able to submit an ICD-10 code that matches their LCD so you can meet medical necessity. If not, we will all be faced with um, a delay in claims processing. October 1st, 2014 is the date that we are slated to become effective. And I also wanted to share with you on October 1st, 2015, the regular updates to ICD-10 will resume. As you know, that all of the code books um, become available in October for the ICD codes, so October 15th, October 1st, 2015 is when the updates will resume for ICD-10. The CMS rollout of the new 1500 form um, is to accommodate the ICD-10 version. Although a start date uh, for using the form has not been announced yet, CMS has created a timeline. So January 6th is the tentative date that Medicare begins receiving and processing paper claims on the new form January 6th through March 31st, again tentative, um, is the dual use period when Medicare receives and processes uh, claims submitted on the old CMS 1500 form and the new form. And April 1st, 2014, again tentative. I love the government. Uh, Medicare receives and processes all claims submitted on the revised form. This is actually a picture of what your revised form looks like. Some of these changes are minor, Um, And some are huge, Uh, like number 10, for example. um, They have added eight additional lines for your diagnosis codes. So you can now submit up to 12 diagnosis codes on the new form. Um, Some of the minor changes were, um, as in number one, they put in the 1500 symbol to replace the scannable uh, QR code. Um, Some changes to the wordings. Um, Some things were eliminated, uh, such as the employer's name or school was removed and some of the other changes were designed um, for NUCC just so that they could have future changes in the future. So if you've not yet um, gotten your updated CMS 1500 forms, please keep in mind that as you're ordering them, not to order way too many because if if January sixth is really going to be the date, then you want to make sure you you are ready for that date and do not order too many of the old ones. Let's talk a little bit about the timeline here. Um, CMS actually published this on January 2013 to go over the implementation timelines for practices, small to medium sized practices at a glance. As you can see, if you look under the 2013 column for October, which we are almost into November, We should really be at level two external testing with everybody involved in the process to get our claims paid. That really is not a reality. Um, We as a billing company have not even been able to test with any of our carriers as of yet. Um, Through our investigation, it's looking like we can potentially start testing with carriers um, starting in January. And... So, we are already way behind the timeline. Um, if you have not started anything with ICD 10, you, you know, when you get a chance to look at the YouTube video, go back and really look at this slide, and, and we'll go through some of the things that um, are on this as far as getting prepared for that. But I did want to share this with you. Why are we doing this? See all those little people in that question mark? Everybody asked that same question. Why do we have to prepare for ICD-10? Again, as I stated earlier, in the United States, we're the only country in the industrialized world still using the older ICD-9 codes for administration and healthcare delivery. It started back with the United Kingdom in 1995, and you can see with Canada, they began adopting in 2001, and it took them over five years to implement the system. The biggest difference between all of these countries now who utilize ICD-10 and the United States who is still on ICD-9 is, again, for the fact that we have so many payers involved in our process. And truly, our providers get paid based on the submission of our CPT and our ICD-9 codes to meet medical necessity for those CPT codes. In these other countries, the providers get paid a salary. So this transition to ICD-10 had nothing to do with how the providers got reimbursed, which is completely the opposite of what's going on here in the United States. This slide's a little busy, but it did have some um, good points that I did want to share with you. Um, basically, it's far better to be underway than under consideration with ICD-10 and 5010. Uh, We did make it through the 5010 transaction standards um, changes from the 4010, which basically upgraded the claims and the billing transactions from the previous version, and there were over 1,300 changes to get ready for ICD-10. ICD-10 will impact all areas of revenue, and the sad part here is, is that it's revenue neutral, which means your providers will not get paid any more money to do this transition and invest the time and energy and the resources necessary to get everybody up to speed to be able to report the ICD-10 codes. So it is a major overhaul. We are actually moving from approximately 18,000 to 140 plus thousand codes um, going into ICD-10. It's increased clinical data complexity. All systems that store ICD CM and procedure codes are affected by this change. So that's inpatient hospital for the procedure codes, outpatient and physician practices for the CM. Coders will need to uh, be trained and recertified and all physicians will need to be trained before the go live date. I'm gonna keep coming back to all physicians need to be trained. This is near and dear to my heart. Um, I presently work with over 45 different practices and my biggest fear is that the physicians are not going to take this seriously and it's going to have this huge ripple effect across our industry come October 1st. I won't beat a dead horse, but I will say it again before we end this presentation. It will impact physicians and clinical documentation requirements and processes. It will impact the IT vendors and already has for years. Your software vendors have been actively working on making these changes to their software so that it's an applicable situation for us to be able to utilize the new coding structure. Um, The trading partners, including your clearinghouses, external reporting entities, and your payers. So if we look back at the timeline, back in 2011, everybody talked about the business continuity planning and and preparing for ICD-10. In 2012, we survived, uh, barely in some cases, but we did survive and make it through the HIPAA 5010 changes. And October 1st, 2012. 14, we go live with ICD-10. So the bottom line is that the safe harbor period is now over and you must be underway now in this preparation for ICD-10. This is a very busy slide, um, but I really just wanted to share with you the impact of how ICD-10 will change everything in your organization. If you start with the positions in the top left, again, we talked about the documentation, Uh, The need for uh, specificity dramatically increases with the required laterality, the stages of healing, the weeks in pregnancy, the episodes of care, and much more. Coding training, the codes increase from 17 or 18,000 to a little over 140,000. And again, the physicians must be trained. And we go on to the nurses, um, your forms that you utilize every day you talk about a super bill, I mean, that's how we've been communicating what the provider has done on a CPT and ICD-9 code basis for years and years and years, and those forms of communication will no longer be available because of the complexity of the codes that we're dealing with with ICD-10. It's going to affect your lab billing, uh, your billing departments, your policies and procedures and training, again, your coding departments, your front desk, your managers, And your clinical area. So again, when you have the opportunity to um, review this on YouTube, please go back and and take a good hard look at this slide. Let's talk about some comparisons um, and differences between ICD-9 versus ICD-10. In ICD-9, your possible codes, and it's interesting as you look through these slides. So this one says 14,000, one says 17, one says 18. So nobody really knows how many ICD-9 codes we have but we are looking up to over 68,000 codes in ICD-10 for physician practices. That does not include the changes for the procedure codes um, in the hospital setting. Our character structure is changing from a three to five digit code to a five to seven digit code. So this is what's been happening in the background with your vendors over the years as they are transitioning the fields in your practice management systems to allow you to be able to enter in up to a five to seven digit code. The pattern has changed. In ICD-9, the first digit is always numeric, except for your V and E codes. And in ICD-10, your first digit is alpha. In ICD-9, there was absolutely no space space for growth, and that's really a huge determining factor as to why we have to move to ICD-10. Basically, it's a broken system. There is no place else for us to go utilizing ICD-9 based on the fact of the size of the coding structure, whereas ICD-10 is a flexible coding structure. In ICD-9, there was no laterality. So we got to um, the point where we had to use modifiers for right and left and bilateral to be able to explain to the carriers what we were doing based on the codes that we were submitting. And in ICD-10, again, why we've got so many new codes is because a lot of them will now be specific to right, left, and bilateral. For OBGYN, in your OB um, section in ICD-9 codes, there was nothing regarding the trimesters. ICD-10, all all of the codes will be broken down for OB, indicating first, second, and third trimesters. This is just a snapshot of the hierarchy of the coding in your new ICD-10 books that hopefully you have on order or have already received. Um, We are going up to 21 chapters in the hierarchy, and you'll find that ICD-10 is really driven based on the anatomy of your body. Um, There are many times in my office we'll have a joke, if we have to find a code, it's like playing a game. You go to the back of the book and you look up a code and it says go here. You go to another section, it says go here. So you're all over the place trying to drill down on where to find this exact diagnosis code. Um, ICD-10 has changed that because the, the premise is they're going to lump your body into sections. So once you're in that section, say for example in chapter seven in diseases of the eye, that you can pretty much stay in that section and find everything that you need to find based on um, diagnosis codes needed. I just wanted to share, this is kind of a busy slide, but I wanted to give you an overview just of some different scenarios that will take place through the conversion. In scenario one, we have an ICD-9 code that will map evenly to one other ICD-10 code. So it's a one-to-one mapping. In the second scenario, you're gonna have one ICD-9 code that's going to map to many ICD-10 codes. For example, you have thyroid fever, and then in ICD-10, you have thyroid fever unspecified, meningitis, fever with heart involvement, pneumonia, arthritis, osteomyelitis, and fever without other complications. Therefore the mapping um, goes from one to many. Scenario three, you have many codes in ICD-9 that maps to just one code in ICD-10. The fourth scenario is you have one code in ICD-9 that absolutely no longer exists in ICD-10. This took place because the code had no mapping Um, in ICD-10 as it was newly added in ICD-9, but deleted in ICD-10. So some of your ICD-9 codes that you presently use may not even be in existence for a mapping situation in ICD-10. And then scenario number five brings up all of the new codes that never existed in ICD-9. So you have zero in ICD-9 that is now an actual new code in ICD-10 so you can see the different structures of which we'll get into a little more detail throughout the presentation but um, definitely in for an eye-opening experience here the structure of your new ICD-10 code is broken into three categories so you have again um, your alpha characters your first uh, initial under the category and then the next three digits really are based on etology, anatomic site, severity, and other vital clinical details. And the last digit is an extension. And we'll talk more in detail about um, that specificity so it makes a little sense. And I thought this was a good representation of a crosswalk from ICD-9 to ICD-10. So in ICD-9, we have uh, the diagnosis code 729.5, pain in limb. So when that code gets to the insurance company, they're like, okay, pain in limb. But where? As you can see from the diagram, we have four limbs. We have two arms and two legs. When we get into the specific site in ICD-10, the code now changes to M79.62, so we have pain in upper arm. So now we've eliminated at least two possibilities, and then we're going to be able to get to the laterality that shows M79.622 is pain in the upper left arm. So that's just a really good example of how we're going from one code up into the extreme details um, of ICD-10. Let's talk about some expected benefits of ICD-10. In the real world, they're hoping for more accurate payments for new procedures, fewer miscoded, rejected, and improper reimbursement claims. I can't wait for that day to come in my world. Uh, better understanding of the value of new procedures, improved disease management, reflects advances in medicine and medical terminology. And again, that is another huge area from mapping from ICD-9 to 10 because ICD-9 just did not allow us to continue to add any additional codes for the advances in medicine and to capture more socioeconomic details and problems related to lifestyle. And I do have some fun slides to share with you uh, as um, some examples of what we'll be able to code in ICD-10. Now let's talk about the consequences for bad planning. Number one, increased claims, rejections, and denials. I can guarantee you come October 1st, anybody in the billing industry will be going down this road, so brace yourself. Increased delays in processing authorizations and reimbursement claims. Um, You're gonna have physician offices getting pre-offs on different diagnoses than what is going to be billed. It's gonna be a huge problem. Improper claims payments, coding backlogs, compliance issues, decisions based on inaccurate data. And my near and dearest um, concern is the post audit chart reviews when the documentation does not support the ICD-10 code provided for the billed claim. And as you can see, my 4 dollar signs for insurance recoupment, um, I just wanna share, take a minute and share some um, background information. I am actually working and have worked in the past with several attorneys who are um, engaged by physician practices who have found themselves in trouble. So for example, an insurance company comes in, does a, a chart audit and determines that based on the codes that were billed, and reimbursed initially that um, there seems to be some concern about the documentation not supporting that level of code um, that was reimbursed. And then they'll go through and do a random across the board. If I audited 15 charts and out of those charts, 87% had an issue, I'm going to go back and recoup 87% of my money over the last two and a half years. And that's a reality. That's what takes place every day. And my biggest concern is if we don't all get on board with ICD-10, providers included starting at the top, that in years to come, we're they're going to be facing chart audits where their documentation is not supporting now the level of specificity that we are providing on that claim form to get reimbursed. So near and dear to my heart, again, I'll bring it up before we end this conversation. ICD-10 enhancements. They're similar in structure and in terms. Combination codes solve sequencing dilemmas. This is kind of interesting and you'll see as we go through with some examples that how the combination codes really will help us. The full descriptions reduce cross-referencing. Laterality when choosing sides. Expanded codes capture much more detail and the extensions specify the encounter you Now, remember the extension is the last digit of your uh, new code <clears throat> and flexibility allows for specificity as you can see um, a lot of this information if it's noted at the bottom I will have a um, link for you to go and find additional information regarding this. Similarities in structure and terms all codes have the first three digits describing the common traits with each character providing more specificity. The same organization as the ICD-9 for the use of notes and instructions and we'll talk a little bit about that in detail. Each code uses the decimal place after the third digit in both ICD-9 and ICD-10. So that's the one thing that has not changed at all. You will have minimum three digits with a decimal point. The tabular list is presented in code number order and is used just like the ICD-9 book. The combination codes are for conditions and symptoms or manifestations. ICD-9 required you to code several codes to identify the proper reporting. The ICD-10 combination code examples will eliminate that problem. For example, I-25.110. Arthrosclerotic heart disease of native coronary artery with unstable angina pectoris. That's a whole lot of information, and an ICD 9 would have been several codes to be able to report that. Um, E10.21, type 1 diabetes mellitus with diabetic neuropathy. T39.A11A, poisoning by aspirin, accidental, unintentional, initial encounter. And I'm sharing these different examples with you because you can see the difference in the coding structure. So one has five digits, one has six, and one has seven. And we'll talk a little bit in detail about those. The full descriptions reduce the cross-referencing. So in ICD-9, you would have to refer back to a previous screen um, to get the fourth or fifth digit. In ICD-10, They've made every attempt to write out the full description to eliminate the need to cross-reference and to get the complete code. And in ICD-10, they now have a symbol which would be considered a point and a dash, which indicates a fourth character is required, for example, L97 point dash. So choosing sides with laterality. The codes for the left side, right side, and in some cases bilateral, are available in the appropriate chapters. If the side is not documented in the record, an unspecified side code is available. For example, C50.511, malignant neoplasm of the lower outer quadrant of the right female breast. Again, in ICD-9, we would not even be able to say it was the right female breast without using RT in the uh, modifier description. For S72.344A, non-displaced spiral fracture of the shaft of the right femur, initial encounter for closed fracture. Now, God bless our orthopedic providers and offices who are gonna be dealing with the massive changes that are taking place in the orthopedic practices with ICD-10 because of the level of specificity. But sit tight, we have some options for you to consider. Your expanded codes capture um, give much more detail. So your expanded sections include injury, diabetes, alcohol, and substance abuse, and postoperative complications sections. Your injuries are grouped by body part rather than by category of injury. So again, all injuries for a specific site such as head and neck are grouped together rather than grouping all fractures or all open wounds. Here's an example of your alpha extensions for injuries. So again, back to your um, display up top. So your extension is the last digit. And if the last digit is an A, that would um, indicate it was your initial encounter for a closed fracture. If it ends in a B, it's your initial encounter for an open fracture. A D, subsequent encounter for open fracture with routine healing. A G, subsequent encounter for fracture with delayed healing a J subsequent encounter for fracture with nonunion and an S for a sequela visit. And what that means is the sequela is you have your initial, you have your secondary encounter, and then your third visit and any visit thereafter for the treatment of the diagnosis that you are billing for would be then considered a sequela visit. Um, These extensions are right now in this example are just showing you for the injuries. There are other different examples of different extensions based on um, initial encounter, secondary encounter, sequela encounter, and what have you. So just keep in mind, these are not the end all be all, these are just examples, and this is just actually from the injury section. Flexibility allows specificity. Because of flexibility and expandability, it's possible to provide more specificity in the coding of many conditions. For example, S72.324A is a non-displaced transverse fracture of the shaft of the right femur, initial encounter for closed fracture. A T81.535D preparation due to foreign body accidentally left in the body following a heart catheterization, subsequent encounter. And I remember years ago, back in the 80s, when I was working with my ophthalmology uh, provider and really teaching these doctors that they are responsible for coding, that they have to give me the CPT and ICD-9 codes, and they have to tell us what they've done. And I'll never forget my boss just laughing at me like, really, you've got to be kidding me. And the reality of it is, is they do have to be able to tell you what they are doing because that's what they're documenting in their chart. Again, back to the documentation needs to support the billing that you're doing. And I'll never forget the day when my ophthalmologist finally memorized several of his ICD-9 codes that he could just wheel off the top of his head and um, spit out to me when I asked him a question. And I think back and look at these new codes now and think, there will never come a day in time where that will probably ever happen again. And so, no fear, I mean, we'll get into a little bit more in detail in some future slides, but I just wanted to let you know there are tools out there that will help us get to the point where we need to be to figure out what these codes are, that you're not going to have to memorize them all. Um, Your standard definitions added to facilitate coding um, are called exclude notes. So you will find in your ICD-10 books, there's two types of exclude notes. You have exclude one, which means do not code this here. Whatever you're looking for, if you get down to that level, it says, nope, this is not where it's coded. And then you have exclude two, which says basically that what you're looking for is not represented here, which means that you should code both conditions of the patient. So in that case, it's saying that you would really have two ICD-10 codes on your claim to get your um, detail across. Let's talk about the placeholder in the um, category of the seven digits. The, there is an addition of the placeholder, and it can be a capital X or a lowercase x, and is used to, um, in certain codes to allow for future expansion and to fill out any empty characters when a code condition actually contains more than six characters and a seventh character applies. So for example, T15.02x is the placeholder, D. And you can see it's a capital D, or I'm sorry, a capital X or a lowercase x. And I'm going to show you the um, format in the ICD 10 book here on the next slide. So, laterality example with a placeholder for future editions. So, we start at the top foreign body in external eye, T15. Foreign body in the cornea, foreign body in the cornea of the unspecified eye. So, and that's a big no-no. They don't want you using unspecified, but they do have them just like they did in ICD-9. So now when we get down to the initial encounter, subsequent encounter and sequela encounter, you can see that we needed to have a placeholder to get us to the seventh digit to be able to fill in the extension box. So that's what the X is for. It's considered a placeholder because the actual code is T15.00, foreign body in the cornea, unspecified eye and so we're getting down to um, then we can go into right eye and left eye which changes the 0 to a 1 and to a 2 but again the placeholder is there so we can indicate if whether it's the initial subsequent or sequela visit. Oh here comes the fun part okay as you can see how cool it is that now we can code a burn due to water skis on fire. Believe it or not, there really is a code for that. And there's actually three of them. So you have V91.07X placeholder A, initial encounter, subsequent encounter, and if you've treated this patient for that burn and you're on your third visit or later, it would be the sequela encounter. And the next couple slides are fun because I wanted to share with you some examples of what you're really gonna find when you start getting into ICD-10. Uh, we wanted to know were you bitten by a turtle or struck by a turtle because if you were your doctor will soon have codes for both of these just in case um, in the animal category there are some award winners that they that I wanted to share with you the bronze award winner is bitten by a turtle the silver is bitten by a sea lion and the gold is struck by a macau who's the pesky talking bird so keep in mind when you're asking for details and that patient is in with your provider that you are getting down to that level of detail. In the plain just plain weird category, we have the bronze winner as hurt walking into a lamppost. Now, to tell you the truth, I can believe that that's a really valid code this, these days because everybody's walking around with their iPhone in their hand, looking down at their phone as they're walking. So when somebody comes in that has an injury on their forehead because they walked into a lamppost, we've got a code for you. The silver winner is stabbed while crocheting, believe it or not. And I will have to share a funny story. A couple of weeks ago, I was um, called to jury duty, not my favorite thing to do, but I had to go do my civic duty. So I'm in jury duty and I had stepped out for lunch. I was still in the same building and lo and behold, if I didn't walk by and there was a woman sitting there crocheting and I really just wanted to stop her and tell her, we've got a code in case you get stabbed with that, that crochet hook because we've got you covered. Um, In the gold category, this is the be-all, end-all winner. It is called unspecified event in an undetermined intent. And again, that clarifies everything. So that's your end-all, be-all. You have nothing better to do and you can't figure out what to code. You can always go to the y 34 section and see what you got covered there. And for those who treat patients by the water, so down at the beach or down in and um, the Chesapeake area, on the rivers, we have some special codes for you. And um, these are considered a calamitous day out at sea. You can code a fall on a fishing boat, jumping or diving from a boat, striking the bottom, causing other injury. If you're bitten by a dolphin, if you're struck by a dolphin, if you have other contact with the dolphin, or if you have other contact and it's our second visit, or it's our third visit, bitten by a sea lion, bitten by an orca, or bitten by other marine animals. So as you can see, all of these years that it's taken to get into the, to the level of specificity that um, the WHO has put into our ICD-10 codes, as you go through your book, when you find these that are important to you, you might wanna make a little cheat sheet so you can reference them. And last but not least, the top eight zaniest ICD-10 codes. It's a collection of the craziest codes you hope you will never encounter. But these are really co- real codes that that are available to you. And I love number one, problem with the in-laws, Z63.1. Really? I mean, I cannot imagine as a patient going into my doctor's office and having a conversation that he would have to document a diagnosis code as problems with the in-laws, some of these were um, presently shared in, in the previous slides, but one is sucked into a jet engine. So if anybody works near an airport, you might want to post that in case you need it. For down in Dover, this is going to be a good one for you. Um, asphyxiation due to being trapped in a discarded refrigerator accidentally. Really? I mean, it's just amazing what these codes that are now available. So I just wanted to share the top zaniest codes with you to have some fun. And let's now talk about the real steps in the process to get to the goal of being ready to utilize the ICD-10 system. We're gonna have the planning, assessment, implementation, testing, and transition period. In the planning phase, let's talk about making sure you have the right people on the bus. You need to establish your ICD-10 project team. And in order to do that, basically you need to start with all of your providers. Again, I will be the first one to say it starts at the top. And you've got to get your providers on board. And I do have some information later in the presentation to share with you where they can actually go and get specific training um, in their specialty through the AAPC. It's on the resource um, slide in case you have to leave early, but uh, that's a good place for them to start. So you want to get the right people on the bus. So you want to establish your ICD-10 project team. And you don't need to reinvent the planning activities of ICD-10. There are many industry resources available to you. And I'm going to take a minute and I'm going to um, minimize my presentation because I want to show you an Excel spreadsheet and talk to you about some of the processes that we've gone through that will allow you to take a deep breath and feel like you're not hanging out there all by yourself. Okay, so give me one second while we do this. And as we're doing this, I'll share with you how this kind of came about. A um, little bit of background, oops, got the right one. A uh, little bit of background is the fact that I am a member of the HBMA, which is the Healthcare Billing and Management Association. Uh, that information is also on the resource um, slide. As a member of the HBMA, we're actually third-party billing companies who are owners and/or um, employees of a third-party billing company that come together. Um, I maintain my certification through them. We have spring and uh, fall conferences every year. And I've been very actively involved now with uh, with HBMA for about 19 years. Um, I presently sit on the board of directors. This is my second three-year term on the board. I'm the secretary this year for HBMA and I chair the Publications Committee. How I came across this company called White Plume Was I actually was going to my fall conference in September and I received an email from the company that said, send me all of your ICD-9 codes and I will crosswalk them for you. So I actually had started a project this summer where I had taken all of my clients and taken all of their ICD-9 codes that they've utilized for 2013 and dumped them into a spreadsheet. And then I hired my daughter for the summer. To take my crosswalk book that I actually purchased for um, crosswalking ICD-9 to ICD-10 and thought I would help my practices by providing them with a sample of what their world will look like using the ICD-10 system compared to their ICD-9 codes. So my poor daughter sat and typed and typed and typed and typed and typed many of these codes out for my providers needless to say summer came and went and she went back to college and so it was not yet completed so when i got this email i was very excited and so i sent her off this giant spreadsheet for all of my clients and she crosswalked these codes for me at no cost um, and the reason she's doing that obviously is they have a tool that will actually take your super bill currently as it exists and create it electronically and you would be able to really go in and pick your ICD 9 code, do a drop down box, and it would give you your ICD 10 codes that are available for your choosing um, if you're going to need to bill an ICD 10 code to a medical carrier. So I just want to take a quick uh, minute and just give you an example of what this looked like. Uh, okay, let me come over here. Okay, so under, uh, I got so many things open here, let me see what this is. Under my cardiology um, practice, for example, this one code 729.89 cross walked to 133 different codes in ICD-10. I'm going to give you a second to kind of take a look at it, you know, we went from unspecified site to right shoulder, left shoulder, right upper arm, left upper arm, um, it just goes on and on and on. So. When you talk about the complexity and the crosswalk of one to one, one to a few, none to many, I mean, this is just an example of what it looks like. In my family practice medicine, I took one code at crosswalk to 32. Contusion of an unspecified finger without damage to the nail bed, initial encounter. Contusion of the right thumb without damage to the nail bed, initial encounter. The left thumb, the unspecified thumb, unspecified thumb, gotta love that, you only have two. Um, The right index finger, the left index finger, the right middle finger, left middle finger, and whether it's with or without damage all the way through. So that's how we go from one code to 32 different options. Again, in the documentation, if we're billing out a code that says contusion of the left index finger with damage to the nail initial encounter, that needs to be documented in the chart. I keep throwing that in there, don't I? Poor general surgeons, here's one. We have one code that crosswalks to 606 different options. Here's an example with the ob practice where you can see that specifically talks about first trimester, second trimester, third trimester. So the one code walked to 42. And our poor orthopedics, they have one code that was probably 35 pages that it mapped to. And I'm talking on each page, you probably had 30 different um, codes, selections. I mean, it's just massive. In this example, uh, the one code walked to 54, unspecified fracture of upper end of right tibia initial for a closed fracture. It goes on and on and on. So there are tools out there. And the reason I wanted to share this with you is I have no ties to white plume. I'm only sharing these examples because I went through the process with them but basically there are tools out there that are available to you and really it's worth it for you to take the time to investigate what your options are so that um, you're ready and, and can utilize some of these tools that are available. I hope that was helpful to you somewhat. Again get your providers involved early and often and have an action plan before people start to work and you need to communicate the changes with your staff. The biggest thing I find is that, in some practices, they could be moving towards the right direction and and gathered their team of people, but they don't take it all the way through their organization. So the biggest thing I can share with you is make sure everybody in your practice, on your teams, are involved and aware of these changes. Start outlining your ICD uh, training plan. And we go in and look at the assessment stage. Let's talk a minute about the general equivalency mappings, the gems, Um, they've been out there forever. They've existed for a long time. And um, basically, for example, White Plume was able to use these gems to map my ICD-9 to ICD-10. They're like a crosswalk. They're not the end-all be-all to the survival of ICD-10, mainly for the fact that there are codes in ICD-9 that no longer exist. And there are so many more new codes that you can't walk it backwards that didn't exist in ICD-9. So the gems are a place to start but that's not the end-all be-all to uh, your survival of ICD-10 transition. Um, You want to identify the impact of ICD-10 to the business processes and systems that you utilize. You need to identify all your trading partners and software vendors, who your uh, practice management software is and your clearinghouse or houses Some people transmit to several clearinghouses and or direct to some carriers and then to a clearinghouse for others. So what are the transactions that you're trading with them? So you're trading eligibility verification, your claims, your electronic remittance advices, and you need to really sit down and obtain each plan's test plan and timeline. You need to reach out and identify all the transactions that could or will experience delays such as submitting claims claim reimbursement, eligibility verification, et cetera. Um, Also in the resources um, slide, there is an end-to-end testing guide. It's an Excel spreadsheet with many, many tabs. Um, I have the link there for you so you can go out and and visit that. But that is actually, was put together by CMS and it it was actually a tool designed to help small to medium-sized practices prepare so again no need to reinvent the wheel utilize what's out there and available to you your operational implementation it's better to measure twice and cut once believe me when I say that do it right the first time so you want to develop your project schedule and stick to it meet weekly to address your progress and be persistent in contacting your vendors for readiness and preparedness So you need to start with your software vendors, your clearing houses, your direct carriers, and document, document, document. And again, that tool in the end-to-end testing should prove to be very valuable to you. You want to secure a line of credit to cover six months of expenses to offset potential cash flow disruption. And I say that wholeheartedly. Um, As the owner of my billing company, um, I don't get paid until my providers get paid. So this is a huge impact for me and everybody in my organization, as well as your private practices and everybody in your organization. Um, Probably a month and a half ago, CMS had indicated to us at HBMA and our ICD-10 committee um, in a meeting with them that they would not be doing end-to-end testing, which rocks everybody's world who submits to Medicare. Meaning October 1st, 2014, The calendar is going to turn the page and they're going to flip the switch and we're going to have to be able to submit ICD-10 codes and hopefully have their system be able to adjudicate those claims. This is a huge disaster waiting to happen. Um, If the government cannot make changes to that and force that to happen, we're going to hope and pray come October 1st when we're dealing with Medicare. That doesn't eliminate the fact that you need to be testing with all of your other payers. Um, Your Blue Shield payers in your state will probably be the highest um, population of your patients. You need to make sure you're on task with them, find out what their schedules are, that your software is updated with your ICD-10 codes, and you need to start testing as soon as possible. If they tell you they're not going to be ready until January 1st, by the middle of December you want to be on their radar screen again you know in their face pick me pick me pick me and and get your testing done to make sure that you will have a comfort level that at least some of your claims can get through and be processed so again securing a line of credit for six months to cover your expenses should there be a disruption in cash flow is imperative and the famous last words is um, you go borrow money when you don't need it so get out there and talk to your banking people or anybody else that can set up a line of credit in case your practice needs it. And don't wait till the last minute when everybody's trying to get that done. Okay, testing. Uh, When Again, when will your software vendor be ready and have your ICD-10 codes loaded in your software? Um, Those who have an electronic health record, um, your testing and your documentation templates and electronic super bills to your practice management systems also have to be addressed. And when you sit down with your team of people on the bus, This is where you're going to brainstorm what, in this practice, every single thing that touches, that ICD-9 touches, will be affected by ICD-10. So now's the time to start putting all of that in place that you're aware of it so you can look at your risk analysis. When will your clearinghouse be able to accept ICD-10 testing um, for claims adjudication? That's another biggie. And keep in mind, just because you might have one clearinghouse and all of your claims go there. And you think you push the button and yeehaw, they're there. Unfortunately, there are many clearinghouses that have relationships with other clearinghouses because they may not have a direct um, response, say, to Aetna. So if I submit my claims to Claims Logic and Claims Logic doesn't have the relationship with Aetna, they're going to go out to Relay Health and say, okay, since you've got the relationship with Aetna, I'm going to bump the claim to you and you're going to forward it on. So your actual claim could hit three hiccups along the way before it gets into the payer's hands, uh, or I should say in their claim system. So you want to make sure when you're doing your testing that you can follow that claim no matter how many hops or clearinghouses it has to go through to get there, that the claim got to the payer, that the... um, Payers able to adjudicate those claims, and we'll show you another slide on the processes, and that you're able to give back your information that you need, that they've received it, that they've processed it, and or denied it on the edits. So you need to make sure when you're testing, you want to really take your difficult claims. Look at what you get denials for now in ICD-9 if it's medical necessity. How many times do you have to t- touch that claim or go back to the provider and realize that you have to do something additionally in order to get that claim paid. Those are the things that you wanna be looking at right now because they're just going to intensify greatly when you hit ICD-10. They're not gonna go away, they're only gonna get worse. So start dealing with what you're dealing with now and be better prepared for that transition. Another situation you have to be able to think about is you are actually going to be running both ICD-9 and ICD-10 simultaneously. Unfortunately, our workers' comp carriers and our auto carriers are not required to transition to ICD-10. Therefore, when you are getting ready to bill a claim, your billing software and staff will have to make a determination if this claim is going to be sent in ICD-9 code or ICD-10. So that's all fine, well, and good. You get through that decision. You send it out there, and you're billing workers' comp. And then uh, workers' comp denies it says, I'm sorry, Um, that's not a compensable injury, so now you need to send this to medical. Next hiccup is that claim is in ICD-9. Now, you better hope and pray that the doctor documented in ICD-10 because you're going to have to find that ICD-10 code that gets to that level of specificity that now you have got to crosswalk that, change that code, put it in ICD-10 format, and send it out to the medical carrier. So another little caveat to keep in mind as we move through. We've talked about the end-to-end testing and how soon can you start. And once you start, you want the results. Again document, 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 test and test again. This slide is a little busy um, and it basically, I just wanted to share this with you, Uh, it came from the National Government Services and it's for all of you in billing who know what goes into the processing of a claim and or eligibility in order to get that claim reimbursed. So it starts out at a provider level um, and through your practice management software, you're requesting patient's eligibility, which is a 270 transaction, you're submitting a patient claim encounter, which is an 837 transaction, and you're submitting a request for the claim status through a 276 transaction. It goes to from our vendor. Uh, They receive it um, through the practice management software provider or clearinghouse. Then they edit this encounter, and then they transfer the patient claim um, encounter on to the 837 and sends it to the payer, and then the payer picks it up, and the payer goes through all their processes. And the payer gets done with their processes. It goes back to the vendor and back to the provider. So there's all these transactions that have to work when we switch from ICD-9 to ICD-10. And this is where your testing is going to come into play. If you get to a certain point, it got to, the, got to the clearinghouse, it got to the payer, didn't make it through their edits. So you need to be able to stop through all of these transitions to determine where the breakdowns are, what's causing them, and what you need to do to fix them. So I just wanted to share this slide with you as an overview um, to the process. Again, in the transition, staff training. Please, please, please start with your providers, your other healthcare providers, your front desk, and your clinical. My famous last words, why does physician documentation matter? Documentation leads to identification of the diagnosis and the procedures, resource utilization for quality management and patient outcomes, supports the length of stay, the medical necessity, and the continuity of care, Again, it captures the morbidity and mortality scores, increased communication of physician documentation, coding updates, guidelines, and case management. Appropriately represents the case mix index. And the precise data capture for public reporting, for example, the health grades and the care uh, sciences. And again, audits may occur years after that patient was in the hospital. So, the documentation needs to support what was billed. And we're getting close to the end here, um, so let's wrap this up on specificity can make a financial impact for outcome of defaulting to uh, not otherwise specified codes. If you find that your providers tend to uh, utilize those codes a lot, nails the time to start transitioning to them to the actual detail of what they're reporting. Physician staffing and interruption to office and processes and flow. Again, back to the coding, the time associated with reworking and researching information needed to adjudicate and adjust the claims. So you have the workers' comp example that I spoke about where it was in ICD-9, now has to go to ICD-10. You pull the chart and you look at the documentation and say, there's not enough information for me to pick ICD-10 code. So, we need to have the physician start transitioning their thought process that they're documenting ICD-10 to that level of specificity no matter what. Identifications of problems that lead to claims being rejected, as we talked about, and educating the provider and entity on the data elements necessary to fix a rejected claim. And the situation if you're unable to translate ICD-9 to ICD-10. That's lost revenue for your practice. If it's not documented, it cannot be billed if it's not supported for that. So take the time now and make sure that you are putting those systems in place to rectify those concerns that you have now with ICD-9. The important resources page we talked about, the very first one is a 117-page official guideline for coding coding and reporting of the 2014 ICD-10 codes. It's very, very informational. I just suggest that you print that out and look at it. Um, I included the CMS ICD-10 website, lots of information there. The end-to-end testing Excel spreadsheet for your use is for the small to medium-sized practices that we talked about. And the biggest thing I'd like you to share with all of your providers is the AAPC um, documentation training for physicians. It's a three-hour course offered by specialty. And if I remember correctly, I want to think it was $295. So 100 hours an hour to get your doctors up to speed, I think it's a really wise investment. Um, Again, the HBMA, which is the Healthcare Billing and Management Association, um, there is a tremendous amount of information out on their website, and I do recommend that you uh, utilize that as a source of information. I would like to thank each and every one of you for being a part of our presentation today. Uh, My contact information, again, is on this slide. And if I can be of any future help to you in the future, um, don't hesitate to call me or reach out to me by email. And I wish you well through the next year of transition. Thank you for coming.